And Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 2.21, an archpriest of such significance, part 2, Hebrews 8.1. We'll go from meditation in our last increment to exegesis and exposition in this one. So to prepare for this, let's pray. And we, Father, we do present ourselves to you today, Father. We present our spirit to you. We present our body to you as a living sacrifice. We present and commit our soul to you as a faithful creator. And we give our heart to you, Father, that we may be taught of you. We do all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In his paper entitled The New Covenant, and that's going to come into play pretty soon, The New Covenant in Hebrews 8. The New Covenant and Christian Identity in Hebrews Peter Grabe, G-R-A-B-E, calls Hebrews 8, 1 through 10, 18, <clears throat> the compositional center of Hebrews. Now, I like that because I'm reading six or seven, maybe eight commentaries on Hebrews, along with trying to plow through volume four or parts of volume four of Christian or church dogmatics by Barth. And it becomes a pretty much a scholarly consensus among the Hebrew commentators that this is Hebrews 8, 1 through 10, 18 is a compositional center of the entire homily. So it's the heart. And there's a heart within the heart that I think we find in Hebrews 9, but we'll get to that. So that gives the sense that in, in terms of a large section, Hebrews 1, 1 through 7, 28, formed a kind of large section of Hebrews. And so from that standpoint, I guess it's good that we did a kind of addendum to Hebrews 7 in the Most High God two-part series. And then, of course, we followed up with a meditation on the enthroned man above. And now we continue in our exegesis. So once again, the compositional center of Hebrews, that's in line with what we could probably call a scholarly consensus. Though our main focus is not on the structure of this homily, that would be a study in itself and a profitable one. Such observations are important in discerning the sermon's configuration and especially in detecting its heart. The Holy Spirit is just as involved in the structure as he is in the content and in every word of this. Here's what we have so far in our translation, Hebrews 8.1. Now the summing up of what we are saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now I'm going to look at one Greek word because I think you'll, you'll see why, and it's T-O-I-O-U-T-O-S. It reminds me of the word Toyota in a way, or Toyotas, and it's Toyutos, T O. I-O-U-T-O-S in the English transliteration, Toyutos, which is also found in Hebrews 7.26. 
It's translated, and I would translate it as, of such significance. We have an archpriest who is toyutos, of such significance. Now, this kind of blends in with Hebrews 2.3. And there we have the word that's a little bit similar, but it's teli, T-E-L-I-K-A-U-T, E, A to S, that's A to E, S. Tele cautes. Tele cautes. And that's T E L I K A U T A to E S. Tele cautes. Cautes. And that's in Hebrews 2.3. The word telikates means so great, so significant, so great, so large, so important, or significant. And it describes the salvation in Hebrews 2.3 that is wrought by God in Christ, by the Spirit for us. I'll say that again. It describes the salvation that is wrought by God in Christ and by the Spirit for us. This salvation is of such great importance that it has radically affected the whole human and creational situation already, is presently transforming those who believe the gospel and will yet alter the human and cosmic condition for the infinitely better. And that we're going to see that in probably in bold print in the notes because that forms a kind of a thesis for our study. In Hebrews 8.1, as well as Hebrews 7.26, toyutas, therefore, by itself, doesn't denote significance. We've already seen that the word kabod, or the Greek word doxes, or glory, means actually significance. But the word toyotos doesn't itself denote significance, but the implication is certainly very strongly present. Such an archpriest, such an archpriest, easily calls for the sense, and we're supposed to give the sense, preachers, Nehemiah 8.8, 8, and teachers, we're supposed to give the sense of the scriptures. The sense called for is this, such a significant archpriest or an archpriest of such significance exclamation point and that's the sense especially if we consider the context he quote sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens that significant moreover given that toyotos is both retrospective and prospective. That means that this verse looks back at what was seen in Hebrews and also looks forward at what will be developed in Hebrews. So this toyotas is both retrospective and progressive, according or prospective, that is, according to A.T. Robertson. Such an archpriest refers to his saving significance. 
And so you can see Hebrews 7.25 for that and Hebrews 9.12 and 9.24 to 28 where the significance of the Lord is seen to be saving. On top of this, Jesus is actually called a great archpriest, Archiaria Megan. There's another word that we could have that's related to significance. Megan, M-E-G-A-N. And that is found in Hebrews 4.14. We have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. Great archpriest, Megan Archiaria. And simply great priest, Ieria Megan in Hebrews 10.21. It's kind of a ABBA chiasmos between Hebrews 4.14 and 10.21, where we have Archiera Megan in Hebrews 4.14, and we have Hieria Megan in 10.21. In Hebrews 4.14, he is Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens. And it says, we have a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We have such a great archpriest, an archpriest of such significance. That's the title of our two-part series so far. Such significance that he bears the name above all names, Jesus. He is the Son, the only eternally begotten, divine, and human Son of God. He has passed through the heavens. He's done so bodily. Perhaps most important of all, he has done all of this for us, pro nobis, for each and for all. For this reason, He's just the kind of archpriest we need as we developed in seven parts. He did all this in obedience to God, his Father, and for us whom the Father willed to save. He died for us. He was raised from the dead for us. He passed through the heavens for us. He went into the Holy of Holies with his own blood for us. Now, I want to introduce a note that I've introduced once before in the blood groove aspect of Hebrews. Speaking of the blood, meaning the blood of Jesus. Consider this clip from Richard Hayes' article, Here We Have No Lasting City, New Covenantalism in Hebrews. That's the name of his article. And Here's a little paragraph. Notice the end of it, which I will emphasize with volume. Quote, Unexpectedly, they, readers of Hebrews, discover that this pre-existent heir of all things shared in blood and flesh, that the new means of access to the non-material heavenly realm is through the curtain of Jesus' flesh, and that he has cleansed their consciences through the embarrassingly palpable act of sprinkling his own blood around in the heavenly sanctuary, in the very presence of God. This stunning paradox short-circuits the categories of the Platonic worldview and invites the readers to reconsider the terms, 
to rethink what they thought they knew about reality, particularly about the relation between God and creation. Here's what really gripped me in that article. Perhaps the heavenly world is not so non-material as we thought. Perhaps the heavenly world is not so non-material as we thought. Now, we could speculate similarly as we did, as we just did and as Hayes did with the blood, with regard to the throne in heaven and the heavenly tent that we're going to see shortly, the heavenly city, etc. Just how non-material is it? It seems we can at least intelligently think about a transcendent heavenly literality. Let me coin that three-word term, transcendent heavenly literality. If Jesus' blood is literally there in the heavenly city, in the holy of holies of the heavenly tent, then it is there as a heavenly literality, a transcendent heavenly literality. And this most certainly does nothing. Now listen carefully to this. This does nothing to diminish the figurative or metaphorical significance of the literary term, the blood of Jesus, which denotes Jesus' atoning death for sins and its forever enduring efficacy. Now that Jesus has passed through the heavens is literally true. One, that Jesus has passed through the heavens, one, distinguishes him from the archpriests of the Aaronic order who yearly passed through the sections of the earthly tent or tabernacle that was, quote, set up by men. And two, that Jesus passed through the heavens implies that he ascended above all heavenly beings, including the principal angels. In 1021 of Hebrews, Jesus is a great priest over the house of God, a great archpriest whom, again, we have. We have him. The house of God is for now, provisionally, that is, the church, the body of Christ. It will be the entire universe. God, who is the builder of this house, Jesus is also the builder of his church, Matthew 16, 18. God, the builder of all things, is the builder of this house, Hebrews 3, 3 and 4. In fact, the whole universe is already the house of God. By reason of the alteration of the creational situation that happened with Jesus Christ and him crucified. It has yet to be via the change of universal creational condition from slavery to corruption and entropy to glorious liberation. It has yet to have the glorious liberation 
that brings the creational condition out of slavery to corruption and entropy, its tendency toward chaos and death, to glorious liberation. But that's inevitable and that will happen. Romans eight nineteen to 23. Both Hebrews 4.14 and following and Hebrews 10.21 and following constitute hybrids of pointed exposition and powerful exhortation. In Hebrews 4.14 to 16, the exhortation is, quote, to hold on tight to our confession and to, quote, approach the throne of grace, close quote. In 10.21 to 22 of Hebrews, it's to draw near, that's the exhortation, to draw near to heaven's holy of holies. In both cases, the drawing near is done with bold confidence in the faithfulness of God and of our great archpriest. See Hebrews 10.23 and 2.27 respectively with regard to that. Now, all of this gives rich texture to the demonstrative, accusative, masculine, singular adjective toyutos, toyutos. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is enthroned at the right side of God the Father in heaven. The throne, this throne we're looking at and considering, is what the book of Revelation calls the throne of God and the Lamb. Not just the throne of the Lamb, not just the throne of God, the throne of God and the Lamb. Revelation 21, 22 make that, 22, 1 and 22, 3. In Hebrews is the throne of the majesty in heaven. Megalosune is the word majesty. And of Jesus, the great archpriest. It is not two thrones, but one. One throne. Jesus is seated on the same throne with God his Father. And this is what John, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loves, close quote, means when he says, the eternally begotten God, the one who is at the Father's side, or literally in the bosom of the Father. John 1.18. The eternally begotten Son, himself God, is beside the eternally unbegotten, unbegotten, begetting Father, himself God. Himself God, yes, this Lamb himself is God. As each subject of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is God in full, so the Lamb himself is God in full. This great archpriest himself is God. He is also the man, Christ Jesus, seated at the Father's side on the Father's throne. Jesus, the Son of Man, said as much to the angel of the church at Laodicea. To that messenger, he said, I will grant the victor to sit with me in my throne, to sit with me in my throne, just as I became victorious and sat with my father in his throne. 
Revelation 22, 1 and following pictures the river of the water of life, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This depicts the eternal procession and the divine mission of the Holy Spirit, proceeding and sent by the Father and the Son, God and the Lamb, thus completing the apocalyptic portrayal of the triune God, one divine being, subsisting in three co-equal personal subjects. The Son and the Spirit are proceeding ones in divine processions, and they are the sent ones on divine missions. The divine missions are two, T-W-O, and both are universal. Both missions are directed toward an unfailing objective, which we have elected to call Uranopolis, the heavenly city with its universal influence, the new Jerusalem, which we are even now to let into our mind. Jeremiah 51.50, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to which we have come. We have come. Hebrews 12.22, the Jerusalem above who is the mother of us all and who is free. Galatians 4.26, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's what he called himself in John 19.26, John 20 and verse 2, 21 and verse 7, 21 and verse 20, that disciple was in a unique position to understand the son being, quote, in the bosom of the father, close quote, because this disciple, the ideal witness of Jesus, famously, quote, reclined very close to Jesus, that is, at his right side, literally, in the bosom of Jesus, at supper in John thirteen twenty three, John, this beloved disciple, was in a unique position of proximity to understand Jesus as the special beloved of the Father. Matthew three seventeen, twelve eighteen to twenty one, Isaiah forty two one to four. Matthew 17, 5, Luke 20, 13, 2 Peter 1, 17, and that we are equally beloved of the Father in him. John 14, 20 to 21, 17, 23, compared with John 3, 16, Ephesians 1, 6, and Colossians 1, 12 to 13. Again, here's what we got so far in Hebrews 8, 1. Now the summing up of what we're saying is this, colon, we have an archpriest who is of such significance that he sat down. Of such significance that he sat down. He didn't just sit down. He sat down at the right of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Endexia to thranu tes megalasunes. Entois uranois, uranois. This sitting is an enthronement, the enthronement of a king and a priest, the king of kings and the great archpriest. Now, consider this. In John 19.13, in a dramatic twist of irony, 
Pontius Pilate is said to have sat down on the judge's bench, a bema, in a place called the stone pavement. The Hebrew is Gabatha or Gabatha. Pilate, the procurator of the Roman beast, sat down, ikathisen, same word used to describe the action of Jesus, the exalted son of man in Hebrews 8.1. Imagine Pontius Pilate sitting in judgment, epi bematos, on the bema bench to judge the son of man to whom God, the judge of all, had entrusted all judgment in John 5.27. The judge who was about to be judged in Pilate's place. In the place of Tiberius Caesar himself. And in place of Nero. Of all men. Jesus appeared before Pilate's Bema. At the second appearing of Jesus, the great archpriest, Pilate will appear before the Bema of Christ, as we all will. In 2 Corinthians 5.10. The Bema of God in Romans 14.10. In the day when we will all give account of ourselves to God. Romans 14.12 compared with Hebrews 4.13. You talk about a flipped script. Fascinatingly though, Pilate refused to judge Jesus. Matthew 27.24, he famously washed his hands. Find no fault with this man. Jesus also refused to judge Pilate. Instead, he received Pilate's judgment, not at Gabbatha, but on Golgotha. When Pilate appears before the Bema of Christ, it will be as a justified man. Because by the one righteous act of this one Jesus Christ, all men were justified. We will all give an account to God, but as justified people. We will all have our works tested, but as justified people. All because the one Jesus Christ who stood before Pilate at Gabbatha was finally judged for Pilate and for all of us on Golgotha. Consider something else from the scriptures. Peter's sermon to the crowd on Pentecost in A.D. 30. Speaking of David, King David, he said, and I'm quoting from Holman Christian Standard Bible with some emphases on my own, starting at 2.29 of Acts. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David, he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, on his throne. Seeing this in advance, David spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades. And his flesh did not experience decay. 
God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this, Peter goes on. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, we're dealing here with Acts 2.33, and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into the heavens. But David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Lord, the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus, the descendant of David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You want to make him Lord? You're too late. God already made him Lord. In this fragment of Peter's powerful proclamation, he refers to both Psalm 16, or Septuagint 15, which predicted the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, and Psalm 110, Septuagint 109, which we've dealt with so much, which foretold Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of God. In fact, Peter actually quotes Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your nail-pierced feet. I add the nail-pierced. This verse from Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1 is alluded to many times in the New Testament, including Ephesians 1.20. These are allusions, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N-S. Ephesians 1.20, in which speaking of God, Paul says, he exhibited this omnipotence in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. And again, this is an allusion to Psalm 110.1. Hebrews 1.3 also alludes to this verse, speaking of God's Son, the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality, who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective who has made purification for sins, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty. Always it's the right hand or the right side or simply the right of God, indicating God's supreme approval of his son, Jesus, the son of God, who humbled himself and the Son of Man, whom God, his Father, greatly exalted. As we've recently seen, this can be compared with Colossians 3.1. So if you've been raised with Messiah, and you have, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. This can also be compared with Paul's reference to the Jerusalem above, as he calls it, in Galatians 4.26, which we are to 
let come into our mind in this meantime. This meantime between the radical alteration of the human situation, which is unseen and appropriated only by faith, and the imminent radical alteration of the human and creational situation, which will happen when Jesus appears in glory. Our great archpriest's passage through the heavens is the direct continuation of the gospel accounts. And Brian Messick is doing a splendid job on Christ and the Passover and on many levels. His messages are very profitable and I hope you're listening. He's doing a marvelous job of showing a harmony of the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John and showing a kind of chronology leading up to the Christ event, the specific event of Jesus Christ's crucifixion on Passover. Brilliant. It's a brilliant series and layered, well-researched, and I think quite ably taught. Our great archpriest's passage through the heaven is a direct continuation of the gospel accounts, especially the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and especially Luke, and I'll explain why. In the alternate ending of Mark, and there is an alternate ending, there is this, in Mark sixteen nineteen. Then after speaking to them, the Lord Jesus was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's an alternate ending in Mark 16, 19. Though some of the earliest New Testament manuscripts don't include Mark 16, 9 through 20. And it, I think I agree with its original ending at 16, 8. But though these New Testament manuscripts don't include Mark 16, 9 to 20, and though it is highly probable that it wasn't part of the original text. Matthew 16, 16 is surely doubtful, which says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be damned or condemned. That's dubious and doubtful. But as the net notes rightly state, the New English translation of the Bible has some excellent notes in it, including in this passage, they say, in spite of this, the passage has an important role in the history of the transmission of the text. So I take this to mean that Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, in a Christological light, was very important to the translators. And I said, especially Luke, because in Luke 24.51b, the third evangelist explicitly reports Based on eyewitnesses, he was carried up into heaven. Only the probably not original ending of Mark refers explicitly to the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God. However, in Matthew twenty-two forty-four, Jesus specifically alludes to Psalm 110, Septuagint 109, 1 as he does also in Matthew 26, 64, where he alludes to Psalm 110, 1, conflated with Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Mark does similarly in Mark 12, 36 and 14, 62, and Luke does similarly in 20, 42. 
In all and every case, it is difficult to overestimate the value of the Christological interpretation of Psalm 110.1 for the New Testament. There is a uniformity of a Christological interpretation of Psalm 110.1, even as Paul Christologically interprets Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1.17. So, Again, the author of Hebrews, especially in Hebrews 4.14, continues the narrative of the Gospels, as it were. In Hebrews 1.3, in the first allusion in Hebrews to Psalm 110.1, the Son's exaltation comes on the heels of his having made purification for sins. Later on, this verse is alluded to again where this archpriest Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That this is definitely an allusion to Psalm 110.1 is shown in the very next verse in Hebrews 10.13 where the PT goes on to say, that as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he is waiting from that time onward until his enemies are placed under his feet as a footrest. So in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus' exaltation to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high is on the heels of his making purification for sins, just as in Hebrews 2.9-10, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of his efficacious suffering and experience of death for all. And again in Hebrews 10.12, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God having offered one sacrifice forever. In every case, we're not allowed to forget Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, there's one more allusion to Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, in Hebrews. It's found in Hebrews 12.2, which urges us to, quote, look away from the great cloud of witnesses to Jesus the founder and completer of faith, who in view of the joy that lay before him endured the cross, thinking little of the shame that it entailed, and has sat down at the right of God's throne. Hebrews 12, 2 again. Even here, even here, Jesus' exaltation and enthronement at the right side of God's throne follows and is inextricably connected to his endurance of the cross. Our present verse, Hebrews 8.1, puts a heavy stress on the fact that we have, or better, we keep on having, Eccleman, an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right, endexia of the throne, to thronu of the majesty, the preposition N here, with the adjective dexia, indicates that Jesus is in the sphere of the ultimate power and authority in heaven and on earth. According to E.W. Bullinger, N here, E-N, which we've seen before as the workhorse of Greek prepositions, has the primary idea of rest and continuance. He adds... It has regard to place and space 
or sphere of action. Consequently, the throne occupies a specific space in the heavens and is a place in the heavens. It may be a literal throne, but also a sphere of activity, which includes a heavenly tent pitched not by men, not by workers under Moses' guidance and authority, but set up by God, a place in which Jesus ministers in his priestly functions. Now, the next word, megalasune, is the word for majesty. Megalasune. You'll see it in print in the printed version of this message. It's an oft-used word in the Old Testament. You find it frequent, not frequently, but quite a few times in the Old Testament. It means majesty, prominence, greatness, importance, or again, here's our word, significance. It's used most often of God or of his acts. In Deuteronomy 32.3, Moses said, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness, megalosune, to our God. In 2 Samuel 7.21, David prayed to Yahweh Elohim in 7.20, saying, because of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness Megalosune, and made your slave to know it. In First Chronicles, also known as First Supplements in the Septuagint, 29.11a, David praises God in a verse that sounds much like the partial text in some translations of the Lord's Prayer. For example, in Matthew 6.13, saying, Yours, Lord, is the greatness, Megalosune, and the power and the glory and the victory and the strength for all things in the heavens and on earth are yours. Sounds like Isaiah 66 two. In Psalm 145.3, the Septuagint 144.3, great, the word megas is used there in the Septuagint, is the Lord and greatly to be praised, his greatness, megalasune, is boundless. In Psalm 152b, praise him for his abundant greatness, Megalosune. In Daniel 219 to 20, the prophet Daniel, upon receiving the revelation of a mystery, quote, bless the God of heaven, saying, worthy of praise be the name of God for the ages, because wisdom and majesty, Megalosune, are his. In the New Testament, the New Testament, megalosune is used only three times. Once in Jude's closing doxology, which says, to the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, megalosune, power and authority before all time and now and for all the ages. Amen. It appears this word megalosune only three times in the New Testament, two of those times in Hebrews, 1-3 and here, 8-1. In both verses in Hebrews, majesty is what we call a periphrasis, a periphrasis, P-E-R-I-P-H-R-A-S-I-S, or a circumlocution for God himself. 
Megalosune, majesty, means simply God. Similarly, when Jesus spoke to Caiaphas about himself as son of man seated at the right hand of the power, seated at the right hand of the power, power, dunamis, means God. That's what Jesus meant. That is God the Father. God not only has majesty, megalosune, and power, dunamis, God is Majesty, megalosune, and power, dunamis. Majesty and power are paraphrases, paraphrases, or circumlocutions for God the Father. Our God, our God who saves, is majesty, is power, is love. What kind of significance does Jesus have, if not saving significance, if not universally saving significance? Christology is central to the Bible and to Hebrews. Christology is determinative of soteriology, eschatology, anthropology, hamartiology, that's a hint for a systematic theology or a dogmatics, if anyone would be interested in writing a systematic theology in the future. A.T. Robertson notes that sat down, the Greek verb akathison, is a repetition of one three with two thronu added, the throne added. Hebrews 1.3 talks about him being seated next to the majesty, at the right of the majesty. Hebrews 8.1 repeats it, but adds the word the throne, added to the word the throne. Jesus is an archpriest of such significance that he is priest of God Most High, who is the savior of all human beings, especially those who believe. The allusion in sat down is always to Psalm 1101, Septuagint 1091, and to Psalm 1104, 1094, by way of Psalm 1101, 1091. Sat down is also a significant posture of our Lord all the way up to Hebrews 1012 in this homily. So we can compare Hebrews 1, 3, 2, 9, and 10, 12, 2, and 3 with 10, 12. And it's always preceded by a reference to Jesus' suffering of death, purification of sins, once and for all and forever sacrifice, or endurance of the cross. Once again, I can't help but think of Philippians 2, 8 through 11 in this connection and in the larger context, the whole hymn found in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Here's a thesis for you then. Our great archpriest who saves us completely ministers in our behalf in the time in between the radical alteration of the human situation which was brought about in his appearance to put away sin and the permanent alteration of the human condition will be, which will be brought about in his second appearance when he appears 
without having to deal with sin again, but to bring salvation to a waiting humanity and a groaning creation. With this we'll say amen and amen.